1: Welcome, everybody, to
2: The Exchange. I'm Tyler Matheson, and the markets are closing out a down week with another big drop, history-making in some ways. We've got the Dow dropping below 30,000, below its June lows. The Dow and S&P are now both below their June lows or have done so in today's trade. The S&P a little bit back up since that happened. Some big-name firms cutting their market expectations. And it's not just stocks, as uh, Scott and the, and the team were talking about out there. Oil falling too, below $80 a barrel for the first time since January. Uh, And that, of course, was before Russia invaded Ukraine. Is $60 the next stop for oil? And we'll get some advice on how to survive higher rates. Three buys and a bail. We got that. But we begin
3: with the selling on the street. And Dom Chu has some very, very nasty numbers. It's turmoil, but it's stabilized a little bit. And the reason why I want to say that is because you mentioned all those superlatives, Tyler. I've got another one for you that you're not going to maybe believe, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. First of all, we'll start with the numbers. Dow Industrials down 585 points at the lows of the session. We were down roughly 700 some points. So again, trying to find some stability, but still it's 2% downside. Similar percentage move for the S&P 500, now below 3,700, 3679 the last trade there, down 78 handles. And the Nasdaq composite down a similar amount as well. So all of these indices with the Nasdaq composite down 228 are lower on the session. Tyler mentioned some of those lows relative speaking, the Dow Industrials now below where it was in the June level. So we're get, again, some traders call it a bear market, down about 20%. But here's something that you may have missed: the Dow Industrials at 29,491. At one point today, we're at a level that was pretty much at where it was all the way back pre-pandemic in February of 2020. So think about it this way. In the entirety of the pandemic lows and the recovery since then, we've lost it all. It's like we just erased the last two years. The market is exactly where it was in February of 2020 before the pandemic even started. Now take a look at some of the other areas. Interest rates. The two-year Treasury note yield has been spiking But it's the speed at which it's gone up. Look at just how far the ramp up has been here. We are going to go all the way back to 2007 to see when the the yields were this high. But it is that speed. It only happened in a few weeks here. Watch those two-year note yields, 4.17%. Because of that, the selling pressure has been everywhere not just in stocks, but also, of course, in government bonds. It's been in places like oil. It's been in copper. It's been in gold. It's been in wheat. It's been in Bitcoin. Everything is lower on the session so far in the commodity and cryptocurrency complex, but it's not all doom and gloom. Let's balance that a little bit with some green on the screen today. That's Domino's Pizza, DPZ, the best performing stock in the S&P 500. Analysts at BMO Capital Markets have upgraded this stock To an outperform or buy rating, they think a lot of the bad news is priced in. So Domino's Pizza, a positive bit of news for you, Tyler, on an otherwise bad day. Back over to you.
2: All right. Domino's Pizza from Dom. Thanks. Uh, So as investors search for clues uh, to the market's next move, Fed Chair Jay Powell is giving them three simple words. Read the dots. Steve Leisman, looking like he's ready for the weekend. But uh, like uh, Michael Corleone in in The Godfather, we keep pulling you back in dots. Talk to me.
1: (laughs) A little bit of work left to do before the weekend, Tyler, but one of the most remarkable parts of that Fed meeting this week, not only the Fed sharply raising its forecast for the funds rate for 2023 to 4.6 percent, but the Fed chair, but the Fed chair Powell embraced that forecast. He called it likely and a plausible path. In the words of former PIMCO economist, Paul McCulley, he said Powell is now hugging the dots Just three months ago, you remember Powell advised investors to take those dots with a, quote, grain of salt. One reason for the change may be widespread agreement among Fed officials on the path. Most you can see there that cluster in 2023 and 2022. Only about 50 basis points apart compared that to the next year. Um, And that maybe gives Powell more confidence now to speak for the committee than he normally does But there could be more going on. Luke Crandall, Fed Watcher at Rights and ICAP, tells me it feels like it's gone from an exercise in unfiltered transparency, that is, they were randomly given in, to a more curated communications tool. Whatever it is, it looks to be working. The peak funds rate now at 469 today for May 2023. The two-year yield also, as you know, surging well above 420. Okay, it seems important now. You've got to follow the dots. Investors should also be aware. They can be wildly off. A year ago, the Fed forecast the funds rate at just 0.3%. As you know, Tyler, we're likely to end the year north of 4%. It's really, it's really quite amazing how things have happened. Did you happen to
2: catch um, Jeremy Siegel in the last hour, any part of his uh, sort of... He was channeling Jim Cramer or Rick Santelli or uh, in his... In his
1: um, really Basically, an attack on the Fed. This idea that the Fed is not paying attention to what's going on yes, in the economy. Correct. correct. Um, you know, it, it, it's out there. The trouble for the Fed is it has its credibility on the line. Uh, look, I, I have a lot of sympathy for what Jeremy said. We had Barry Sternlicht on. We have others have been saying this. Um, the trouble is it's got to show up in the numbers. It's got to show up in slack in the labor market. It's got to show up in a decline in housing prices that shows up in the consumer price index. I don't think the Fed look it, it can take into account what it's hearing from other from from CEOs and and the anecdotal evidence of the economy but it's got to be driven by the data and and unfortunately it's a bit of maybe a, um, an unavoidable accident in the sense that the data will be late we'll see you remember Tyler I offered uh, uh, chair Powell the opportunity to say that it's possible they would pause and he said yeah maybe but now is not the time they still yep. have a lot of work to do I I, I think Tyler Maybe at a 4% range, they might be able to pause and look around before heading to 46 But if they do not get some help in the next couple inflation reports, do not show some slack developing in the unemployment rate, I think they may be headed to that four six range.
2: All right. Uh, thank you very much, Steve Leisman. Uh, the yield on the 10-year now hitting its highest level in more than a decade. Uh, Rick Santelli is at the CME with more on the move in rates and currencies. And, Rick, when I said uh, that uh, Siegel was potentially channeling his inner Rick Santelli, I said it with all due affection to you because he was as passionate uh, as I have ever seen him, as you so often are.
4: It, it, it just... It blows my mind that central banks have done everything in their power over the last several decades to try to mitigate the true feeling of pain we should have all been inflicted with, and yet here we get three helpings. And what's more, there's no common sense here, okay? Congratulations to Dr. Siegel. I completely agree with everything he said when you can't even press a little common sense into strategies being dominated by central banks that govern every person on the planet. Steve said it best. Steve said, you gotta hug the dots. You gotta follow the dots. Yet the dots are highly inaccurate. It's like the blind leading the blind, I'm sorry. Now, 10-year, so let's look at 10-year. Let's standardize the charts, Tyler. Let's make this easy for viewers. So we're gonna look at several 10-year yields over 10 years. So look at our 10-year over a 10-year chart. you see how the right side is way higher than the left? It's been more than 10 years. Let's look at bond yields, almost exactly 10 years. Let's look at gilt yields, way more than 10 years. And here's something interesting with gilt yields. I love Dom's hit. He's as smooth as silk, Dom Chu. He was talking about our two years accelerated. Consider this. The gilt was on August 1st, Tyler. It was at 1.8, 180. Okay, it is currently over double that in, what, less than two months? That's what I call wild. Now, I couldn't even use the 10-year for the next three charts, so I said, let's use 30-year charts. So here's a 30-year chart on the dollar index. Here's a 30-year chart on the dollar yen. Here's a 30-year chart on the pound versus the dollar. These are big moves, and we're all paying the price because central banks didn't have the courage To do the right thing, they tried to make it easy, they tried to manipulate markets, and you could only squeeze a water balloon so long before it pops out somewhere else. And right now, well, R.I.P. Tina. Rest in peace, there is no alternative, because anybody who's left their money in stocks realizes Tina is dead.
2: So talk, talk us through what, because I think people often need to be reminded, how important... Uh, The rise in strength in the dollar is and what it will mean to the to the U.S. economy and to U.S. consumers.
4: You know, the, the foreign exchange market is the only way that investors and their money could get at real risk areas, because if you're managing interest rates, how do you get the relevance back? Through interest rate differentials by devaluating the currency because you've managed your interest rates like the Japanese have and what's the payoff here well those of us that live within the borders of the US are gonna find that everything that comes in we're gonna get a little better deal than everybody else because are dollars strong. The problem, as everybody has pointed out over the last several days, because we're the best business channel there is, is there's a large segment. Many bring up the S&P. What, 30% of the S&P is overseas financial activity. So when the dollar is strong, that is going to suffer. So the S&P side of that international investment will go down. But at the end of the day, I'm sorry. I believe in home field advantage. I believe that people in this country are getting some benefits to the strong dollar. The problem is, is that the Fed, so dominated by what it's doing, just can't even look and see that the global recession is going to make many of the issues they're most afraid of much less fearful here, much more fearful outside the U.S.
2: Rick Santelli, thanks very much. We appreciate your uh, insights, as always. All right, in times of economic uncertainty, investors typically turn to defensive stocks. But our next guest says the time for that play has come and gone. So where is he finding value this far into this bear market? Let's bring in our friend Andrew Slimman, Managing Director and Senior Portfolio Manager at Morgan Stanley Investment Management. Um, Andrew, welcome. Good, good to see you. Uh, you've heard a lot of conversation here so far uh, at the top of this broadcast. Let me get your overall reaction to what's happening in the markets today and what Steve and Rick and uh, Dom Chu have said at the top of the broadcast.
5: We're seeing the damaging effects of a tightening Fed, which is leading to continued PE compression. And with the two-year at four, you know, north of four percent, that's a very attractive alternative to stocks and stock yields. And and that's gonna that's gonna continue to compress uh, the stock market at least for a while until we get some relief uh, uh, in interest rates, whenever that comes. Go, you,
2: you say that the time for investing in so-called defensive stocks, that would be consumer staples, maybe healthcare, uh, and most notably energy that the time for those kinds of plays is past. Why do you say that?
5: Well, the time to buy defensive is before you have a bear market, not when you're down 22% on a bear market. And I think down 22% really masks the damage that we have seen in stocks because the top 10 stocks are only down 11%. That means the other 490. There's just so many good quality companies out there that are down 30 40 50% that have a little bit more cyclicality to their business than defensive's. I think I don't I'm not I'm not talking about the next 12 days, but over the next 12 months, I think it's highly likely if you find good quality companies that are down that magnitude that you'll make you know, you'll have a good return over the next 12 months, given the the damage they've already experienced.
2: So the damage they've already experienced. I want to linger. I want to come back to um energy in just a minute but but what you're arguing for here here it seems to me are quality companies that have a cyclical component to them so that uh, as the economy may turn eventually they will lead the way out and three of those companies are uh, RH the former Restoration Hardware, uh, Home Depot, and SVB uh, Financial, which is a, a Silicon Valley bank. Why those three? What's, what are the standout qualities that
5: unite them? Sure. So, you know, I've been in this business a long time, and I've always made my, the most money, uh, you know, really buying fear and selling greed. And fear and also finding companies that have been market leaders that have generated excellent returns over time, but they have fallen out of favor temporarily. Their valuations have come down to very low levels, uh, maybe even cut guidance so that expectations are lower. And then may- assessing whether their problems are structural or cyclical. And I think if in fact, if in fact, at some point next year, The Fed begins to ease up on what they're doing. These stocks are down so much and their PEs are so low that they have a chance for actually PE expansion. And I think, you know, I think the risk next year is that earnings guidance could for the market overall could be too high and that will come down. But PEs for many stocks have a chance to lift, not for the S&P overall. But for many stocks, it could lift if the Fed takes the quote off the break because they're trading barely above single digits.
2: Let's let's have a final word on energy. You said you like to buy fear and sell greed. I guess you would put put energy in the category of greed. Those stocks as a group are up about 50 percent this year. Um, Not some not doing so well lately. Uh, We've had oil going down, down, down. Um, So sell Energy.
5: Yeah. So don't forget the energy futures curve went negative a year and a half ago. There was a glut of oil. Everyone, you know, these stocks were doomed and the yields were very high. Now they've done the best. And Tyler, you know as well as I do, it ain't where it's been, it's where it's going. And it seems to me the Fed is either going to do two things. One, they're going to engineer a slowdown or they're going to engineer a recession. And either of those outcomes is not very good for energy prices. And that's it's the best performing group. So I think you're in the late innings of owning these stocks. And I'd rather go into something that's down a lot, that offers a lot of upside, than hope to God I'm not too late into a group that's done very, very well. I think the risk reward in some of these consumer areas is far better than an energy that's done very well because it's where will we be a year from now? And I think it's more likely consumer stock will be higher than energy
2: stock. A very clearly stated case, Andrew Slimman. Always good to see you. It's been a while. Nice Glad to have you, you back. All right. Uh, coming up, they, they say 80 is the new sp- 60, speaking of energy, or at least uh, for oil, it may be. Up next, we'll look at where crude prices go from here as they fall now to their lowest levels since January, uh, down below 80 a barrel. Plus, with rates hitting multi-year highs, buying financials should be a no-brainer. But not every bank or financial created equal. We've got a special financials edition of three buys and a bail ahead. And as we head to the break, meantime, let's get a quick check on the markets. Uh, The Dow well off the lows of 720 points down, but still uh, uh, about a half of a thousand points lower right now. And there you see the S&P 500, NASDAQ and Russell down below 30,000.
6: What's on the horizon for financial markets?
2: Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Global recession fears sending crude plunging below $80 a barrel. For the first time since January, there you see it at 79.16. That's WTI, down 6%. Investors fearing that the market will suffer from demand destruction as central banks around the world continue to raise rates. Our next guest says lower demand doesn't necessarily mean lower prices. Joining us now, Francisco Blanche. He is head of global commodity and derivative research for B of A Securities, Francisco. Welcome back. Good to have you with us. I, I, I take it you see a looming sort of balance in supply and demand that will keep prices sort of roughly where they are today in the eighty dollar a barrel area, or am I misunderstanding?
8: Um, well, uh, Tyler, actually, uh, we are we are more on the constructive side when it comes to energy uh, because we see three factors that could push prices higher. First. Uh, we think that um, at some point over the next uh, two, three, four months, China is going to start reopening uh, its economy, as uh, we've seen already in, in Hong Kong. And uh, and that's going to lead to a big surge in, in domestic demand uh, for, for uh, mobility, but also international air travel demand uh, within Asia. And, and globally, that's going to drive, drive the, that uh, consumption up. Uh, so we expect Asia to essentially deliver uh, almost 90% of incremental demand growth uh, in 2023 um, on, in terms of, 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 global incremental global consumption. Second element here is, uh, is really around substitution. Uh, we've had very high natural gas prices in Europe. Uh, we have record high thermal coal prices, and we believe there'll be substitution into oil because, again, when coal is trading over $100 a barrel of oil equivalent, And and residual fuel is trading in the 60s. Um, Actually, that means that oil is a lot cheaper uh, in power generation and and just generally across the board uh, compared to other fuels. And the third element here is Russia. Russia, um, there is an oil price cap coming, and uh, we believe there is a meaningful risk that Russia will reduce supply um, in response to the uh, price cap that the US and Europe are trying to impose on them. Um, to, to essentially try to curb the amount of revenue that goes into Russia, and they've already played that game in gas, and they could very well play it in oil. So I like too. your
2: I like your three-legged stool here: uh, that uh, number one, China and Asia will come back, that will be bolster right. demand. Number two, there'll be substitution uh, away from uh, nat gas and coal and into oil. And three, that that, that Russia may reduce supply in response to price. Let's take them one one at a time. Uh, Let's let's stipulate that China comes back, but let's also remember that it may well be that the rest of the world is in a serious recession. Yep. Um, so, d- does one cancel out the other?
8: Well, um, again, the, the downside risks I, I, was, I was going to add are obviously recession uh, on the demand side, and then the uh, second one I think is an Iran deal, uh, although that looks uh, looks uh, less likely now after. Uh, both uh, European and U.S. diplomats have um, essentially argued that uh, Iran doesn't seem very, uh, very willing to move forward. Um, so, so really, your key downside risk is recession, uh, uh, Tyler. And, and um, look, under under historical uh, demand contractions, we've seen recession to the tune of half a million to a million barrels a day uh, contractions relative to trend mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. in in developed markets. Uh, that's about uh, between half a percent and one percent of a market that's around 100 million barrels a day. Um, and, and today Russia is now more or less producing 11 million barrels a day. So if we were to see Russian supply drop by two to three million barrels a day from, from the current levels, we could actually more than offset that. And, and again, on the, on the, on the demand side for China, uh, you were asking about that. Uh, we think demand probably expands. Remember,
5: mm-hmm.
8: uh, this year, 2022 20, uh, is the first year in 20 years where Chinese oil demand has actually contracted and it contracted by two and a half percent this year. So um it, it's kind of a unique year. Um and we think that going into twenty-three we'll see uh, demand above the levels of last year. And, and, and that alone is quite a bit of demand.
2: Let's transition to point number two, and that was the idea that as uh, natural gas and coal prices stay high, there will be a substitution effect, and that oil will then become the swing fuel uh, for power generation. My question is how easy is it? Is it to do that kind of substitution? In other words, are there still plenty of facilities that can generate power using oil as opposed to nat gas or coal?
8: Well, um, I, I, there's, there's two, two points to be made there. First, obviously, uh, a lot of the oil fire generation capacity around the world has been shut down for the last 30 years. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, in, in truth, there is uh, power generation, uh, in different parts of the planet. And remember, it's not just a European substitution game, uh, because European gas prices are so high. You're essentially, uh, trying to draw gas from, let's say China or, uh, Japan or India or South Korea or elsewhere, Brazil. And, and that is going to force the substitution, not just in Europe, but worldwide. And, and that's why we think the number uh, is going to be north of a million barrels a day, or around 1% uh, of the market. Uh, the International Energy Agency has put that number closer to half a million barrels a day. But definitely, everyone's kind of trying to work out it's half a million to a million a little more. Yeah. But but there is a substitution element there. And I mean, I can tell you, I mean, there was an article uh, today floating around on, on Bloomberg that... Um, the uh, uh, you know the, the banks themselves in Europe are preparing for uh, contingencies, and that means uh, filling up your uh, diesel fire generators in case your uh, power supply goes down. And I think right. you know, something is not just not just the banks. I think every every company in, in Europe is preparing for that eventuality. Uh, Very so going to drive up demand for for, for uh, diesel fire generators. Well,
2: Francisco, thank you for taking my questions, and and I appreciate your insights today. We'll have you back soon. Thank you, Francisco Blanche uh, of B of A. Uh, Commodities and Derivatives Research. All right, still ahead. Chip stocks are on pace for their worst week since July. We will get the biggest laggards in the names that might be poised for a rebound. And as we head to a break, take a look at the Dow heat map with Chevron and Boeing, uh, the worst performers right now. 11 Dow stocks hitting new 52-week lows, including Microsoft, Visa, 3M, Nike. It's a lot of red. There's one green one. I can't even see what it is. J&J. The exchange is back after this.
7: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, package and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.
2: All right, welcome back to the exchange. Markets right now off the lows, but you may well want to send children into the other room. The low, uh the low for the Dow was about seven hundred points down. Uh, now down six hundred and twenty-six. There's the s p P five hundred. The June low was thirty-six sixty-six, as I'm told. Uh, so we've been we've been below that. We've taken that out, but we're back above it now, down two and a quarter percent. And Nasdaq is down two and a quarter percent. Everything in a bear market. Mega cap names dragging the market lower today. Uh, Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, Amazon, Tesla, all of them lower and uh, by up to uh, four, almost 5% in the case of Tesla, uh, 2% of thereabouts in a couple of the other uh, names that we show there. Tesla among the worst performers uh, in the NASDAQ right now. FedEx is lower after announcing a 7% increase in shipping rates and plans to cut another $4 billion in annual costs. Remember, shares had their worst day ever last week uh, and they there you see that worst day ever uh, as you come right in there. And here the EKG uh, sort of continues uh, to wobble a little bit lower. Uh, profit warning last week was what sent it off the cliff there a week or so ago. Costco is down despite an earnings beat. Operating margins came in slightly below consensus. And the company said it had no immediate plans to raise its membership prices. There you see a fall off uh, in Costco. Look at that. Wow. Over the two days? Uh, I guess it's a two day measure there, down 18% right now. My goodness. Uh, uh, so, speaking of Costco, consumer staples, generally speaking, holding up better today. And even though the group is on pace for its third straight negative quarter, there are some standouts uh, in this, this class this year. And Dom Chu has the names in Sectronomics.
3: So, Tyler, third straight negative quarter, perhaps, but also. The third best performing sector so far in 22, despite the fact that it's down 10% on a year-to-date basis, that's better than the 23% that the S&P 500 is currently down right now. So if you take a look at the overall picture for some of those moves, it is about the relative performance of those consumer staples, less economically sensitive. Now, if you take a look at some of the leaders and kind of what's been happening and what's been driving that trade, take a look at some of these over here, Lamb Weston, Archer Daniels Midland, General Mills, among some of those that are up double digits, and not just double digits, around 20 some percent, 17 to 20 percent for some of those names. If you take a look at some of the other ones that are currently in play right now, those are the ones that are becoming interesting here, because if you look at the picture for that, it becomes comes the laggards an Estee Lauder down 38% year to date Tyson Foods down 20% and then Walgreens Boots Alliance here down about 37% as well. But they are also among the those that could have the most potential upside because they've fallen by so much. We could see some moves higher there if analysts are correct on those. So, Tyler, keep an eye on those consumer staple stocks. They have been outperformers. We'll see if they continue in a possible economic recession-type scenario. Back over to you.
2: Uh, Dom, thank you very much. I want to correct myself because I don't want there to be confusion on Costco. It is down not 19%. It's down 19 points. Uh, And that is about a 4% decline. So 19 points, not 19%. I misread it. I apologize. Bertha Coombs has a CNBC News update.
9: Hi, Tyler. Thanks very much. Here's what's happening at this hour. The investigation into possible sex trafficking crimes involving Congressman Matt Gates will likely end without charges, according to The Washington Post. Prosecutors in the case are not recommending charges against the Florida Republican. The investigation began in 2020 and centered on Gates's alleged relationship with a 17-year-old girl years earlier. Gates has denied any wrongdoing. The death toll continues to rise after a boat carrying migrants from Lebanon sank off the coast of Syria. At least 77 have been reported dead, and officials fear the number will rise. Thousands have been trying to flee Lebanon as the economic crisis worsens in that country. And so-called elections are underway in Russian-occupied regions of Ukraine. The referendums ask people if they want to join Russia and has already been condemned as a sham by Kyiv and its Western allies. They say Russia will manipulate the results, whatever they are, and use it as a pretext to annex parts of Ukraine. Tonight on the news, more on the voting underway in those parts of Ukraine and the latest on Hurricane Fiona's path as it barrels toward Canada. Tyler, back over to you.
2: All right. Thank you very much, Bertha Coombs. And still ahead right here on The Exchange, rates are set to keep rising. uh, So how do you play it? A special three buys and a bail financials edition coming your way, including why you should avoid this stock down almost 10% in a month. We'll tell you which one it is. And a quick look at the airline stocks today, all falling hard as global growth fears take hold. American Airlines, United, they are the biggest laggards. You're looking at a 5% decline for United. Delta is also lower by better than 4%. What a busy day this is. Welcome back, everybody. As the Fed continues to hike interest rates, so are banks. The prime rate, now back to levels not seen since 2008. Higher rates, usually seen as a bullish sign for financials. They can make more on the spread, as this saying goes. But before you go out and dive in, remember, not all financials are created the same. So where are the buys and what's one name to stay away from? Joining us now, CNBC contributor Gina Sanchez. She's chief market strategist at Lido Advisors, has three buys and a bail for us. Number one stock is Bank of America. The shares, Gina, off significantly this week, about 8% despite the Wednesday's Fed hike. But this is your high interest rate sensitivity play. Explain that and what's going on here.
10: Yeah. When I say high interest rate sensitivity, I really mean that they have the right kind of sensitivity. Because remember, as you said, banks make money on the spread. They pay at the short end. They they make money at the long end. And so as the short end is rising, some banks are actually getting squeezed in that net interest margin. But a big chunk of Bank of America's deposits are actually in very, very low paying uh, deposits in their wealth management unit. And so they are not suffering that net interest margin squeeze. Um, and their net, net interest margins expand. You know, 18 percent over the first six months, and they're probably going to be able to hold on to those gains.
2: All right. So there's one call, one big vote, one cheer for Bank of America. Let's move on to the second one. PNC (laughs) Bank also lower by about 8 percent this week. You call this one your strong regional pick. PNC is is a regional that's punching up into being a, a, a big sort of national scale player.
10: You are absolutely right. Uh, with the purchase of BBVA's uh, U.S. Uh, network, they're basically like the national Main Street bank, but they're still a Main Street bank and they're making consumer loans. Now, at this time in the market, there would be a lot of people that would say, oh, the economic cycle is really rough. You're gonna have a hard time with consumer lending, but the household balance sheet is actually really, really um, still quite good. Um, In fact, debt levels, even though they rose a little bit during the the pandemic, are still at all time lows. And so with a really healthy balance sheet, PNC is making some really profitable, and very well underwritten uh, consumer loans, and I think they're going to do really well.
2: You mentioned BBVA. It is your next uh, pick here. Spanish Bank, final buy, consumer-centric, as countries around the world look to shore up their economies. What's got you intrigued about this one, apart from the fact that they sold something to uh, to PNC?
10: Well, it's also it's a bigger play actually. It's one of the few ways that you can get access to Latin America. Latin America has actually been doing extraordinarily well this year. It's one of the few markets that's actually still up, um, and it is you know it's, it's enjoying obviously the, what's happening um, with oil, but it also has the benefit that that as we start to pull back from from offshoring to China, um, we're probably going to be nearshoring to Latin America. So there's lots of good reasons to like Latin America right now. And BBVA is really exposed to that market, um, particularly in Mexico, which is a neighbor to the U.S. And so there's, there's a really strong play that international is a dicey place right now, but this is one area that you might want to figure out how to get exposure to, and this is one way.
2: And we've got one bail, and it is Wells Fargo. It is all about mortgages, right?
10: All about mortgages. You know, when, when interest rates are falling, uh, people continually pay to keep refinancing to get into that lower and lower mortgage. But the problem is, is that when interest rates are rising, people don't necessarily want to refinance into a higher interest rate <laughs> loan. So they'll keep the interest rates they have. They have no, they have no interest rate sensitivity. So they get no benefit from the higher interest rates because they're not making more money. Everybody stays locked up in what they have and no fee income. So it just really blunts what would normally be kind of a good a good play on banks they're just too locked up have, too have big, they big, said they want to business. kind
2: of uh, be less a player in the more in the mortgage business have they been saying that
10: you know they have but but the reality is is that it's still a huge part of their business and yeah. so they can say that but they, they're going to have to grow the rest of their bank in order to deal with that
2: yeah yeah <laughs> well we spoke with a bank executive i think it was yesterday from valley national he said the refinancing business is just dead it's gone it's not, you know, why would you yeah, right. Gina, always great to see you. Why would you? Yeah, why would you? Gina, thanks. Thank you, Tyler. You got it. All right, coming up, saying should uh, saying should investors start saying bye-bye, Tina. With stocks continuing to slide, yield hunters are finally finding alternatives. While you might want to consider adding corporate bonds to your portfolio. We'll talk about that and more in a moment. Investors uh, on the hunt for yield are looking to some unfamiliar places in this environment. And that includes corporate bonds, which suddenly look attractive after hitting their lowest levels in more than a decade. And Bob Pisani joins us with the details. Hi, Bob.
11: And Tyler, corporate bonds are really starting to look very attractive. You know, for years, the mantra was, Tina, you know, Tina, there is no alternative to stocks. That's not the case anymore. Prices for large corporate bond ETFs, look at this, LQD, it's at the lowest level since 2010, essentially. Many are now starting to take notice of the steadily rising yields of large cap corporations, particularly in the two- to five-year maturity range. Yesterday, for example, Apple's five-year bonds had a 4.31% yield. Look at GM, 5.78, Home Depot, 4.3. Then when you get into the high-yield territory, that would be Ford and Macy's. It's even more attractive. Ford, 6.7, Macy's, 7.4%. These are five-year bonds. Now, I spoke with TradeWeb. They're an electronic trading platform. They told me they have seen a pickup in retail interest in corporate bonds recently. Investors are saying, these, aren't yields. These are not yields that I haven't seen since before 2008. This might be interesting to put in my investment portfolio. And while Treasury yields are also up, you can get a 3.9% yield on a five-year Treasury note, for example, the corporate yield curve is not inverted as Treasuries are. So the corporate yield curve is a little more normal. It's more upward sloping. And you can get a little more yield the further out you go, but not too much. So just take a look at Apple's 10-year bond yield, so, for example. 4.4% there. That's not much more than 4.31% for the five-year. And that may cause a lot of investors to wonder, why should they buy a 10-year, Tyler, when they can get a roughly the same yield for a five-year? And that's true for uh, A-grade bonds. But if you go out a little further, if you go out in the junk bond territory, there's some notable differences, Tyler. For example, Macy's, I see 9% on their 10-year. That's versus roughly 7% for their five-year. So you've got to take a lot more risk, but you can get more yield. In junk bonds, the further out you go. Tyler?
2: All right, Bob. Thank you very much, Bob Pisani. Uh, And up next, the Dow and the S&P both falling below their June lows today. But according to one strategist, the NASDAQ is the weakest of the major averages and is poised to retest its 2020 lows as rates continue to climb. We will check the charts and get the tech name to buy on the dips. And now more than ever, you want to hear from the investing heavyweights at CNBC's Delivering Alpha conference. It returns in person on Wednesday, September 28th. Go to CNBCevents.com to register. The exchange returns after this. All right, welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Markets on pace for another losing week. And we could, could we see a repeat now of the 2020 lows? Our next guest says some charts are pointing to a yes answer to that question. Let's bring in Bill Strazullo. Partner and chief market strategist at Bell Curve Trading. Bill, welcome. Good to have you with us. Let's start with the NASDAQ 100, which you say is ominously retesting uh, the sort of midpoint of its March 2020 lows. We've taken out the June lows. Uh, We're going back now to to more than two years ago.
6: Yeah, the bottom line, Tyler, is the path of least resistance is still lower here. When you try to answer the most important question across all the global financial markets, when is this bear market going to end? When is it going to turn around? The key trend that you need to focus on is the rally off the March 2020 low. So when we look at that relative to the NASDAQ 100, it's still in a lot of trouble. We're below the mid-range on that, which is 11,800. And now we're testing the last line of support, which comes in anywhere from 11,000 to 10.3. So that really needs to hold. Otherwise, you're talking about a total repeal of the whole March 2020 rally, which would take the NASDAQ 100 down to 7,000. So that's not a base case. You know, we think the market, at least at this point, will hold in somewhere between 11,000 and 10.3, but that's not a trivial probability.
2: Yeah. Let's move on to the uh, S&P 500. What are you seeing there in terms of um, its uh, sort of um, positioning?
6: Sure. I mean, the S&P 500 um, has more downside as well. At a minimum, we're going to test 3,500, which is the March 2020 mid-range. Now, I think you might get a short-term bump here anywhere from 3,600 to 3,650. That's basically the objective off the uh, uh, mid-August highs. But bigger picture, I think minimally we test 3,500 in the S&P 500. And that is just a place where I would cover short and bearish positions um in terms of being a long term accumulator I, right now we're telling clients we we, we want to begin to buy somewhere even deeper around 3300
2: and so that is again uh, that that is that your base case or is that that non trivial probability
6: yeah. no no I, the base case is that we should at least test 3500 right. which is the mid range off the march 2020 lows but that's a place where we want to cover shorts uh, and bearish positions, if you said to me right now, when would I look to be an aggressive buyer, I'd probably look even a little bit lower somewhere around 3,300. So when you look across the board, even the Dow, which was the, the uh, which has been the uh, best performer on the way down, uh, which is typically the case because it was slowest on the way up, um, I still think the Dow could get down to uh, twenty eight thousand twenty seven. So we're still not at a point where, I think you want to be aggressive on the buy side.
2: Well, there so you we, see, there you see the Dow off the off the March 2020 lows, uh, but you see it coming to that midpoint that you that you uh, point to, and you think it could go 28,000, 27,500. Today we are below 30,000.
6: Right. Yeah. I mean, again, the. The Dow was the slowest on the way up, so on the way down, uh, it's given up the the least amount of ground, and that's typically the way it happens. But when I look at the Dow right now, I think we should definitely test the mid-range off the March 2020 lows, 28,027.5. That's probably the first place where I I think it makes sense to take a look at it on the long side. But again, when you look across the board, Tyler, um, uh, you know, we're we're not at the end of this thing yet. I, I still think there's more downside.
2: Doesn't doesn't feel like we're, we're near the end of it yet. Uh, I agree with that. Bill Strazzullo, always good to see you, sir.
6: Thank you, Tom. Th-
2: thank you for talking us through it. All right, still ahead, it's another tough day for the uh, chip stocks, folks. Uh, we will get the names approaching their 52-week lows and why things uh, could get even worse. Uh, what a cheery note. A- and a quick look at Bitcoin right now, trading below 19,000, lowest level since June 19th, earlier today. Uh, this is the dollar continues to rally. Bitcoin slumping. All right. Welcome back, everybody, to The Exchange. We want to get to one more thing before we go, and that is chip stocks are getting very close to their 52-week lows. Christina Parts and Everest is at the NASDAQ with the names getting hit the hardest. Hey, Christina.
0: Well, Hi, Tyler. We are getting oh so close to that yearly bottom. Not just one, but several names. You've got Broadcom, LAM, AMD, NVIDIA, Applied Materials, Western Digital. Those are all that I could fit on one screen. All of those stocks are literally less than 1% off their 52-week lows. And those constituents dragging down the stocks and the SMH ETFs, the SMH is actually on pace for its fifth negative week in six. So what gives? Well, we know demand in electronics, the weakness uh, continues. We're starting to see weakness in cloud. And so that's weighing on chips. You also have higher rates that hamper growth names but an inventory correction is also a big factor for these stock drops supply disruptions that we had just over the last 2 years or so have really resulted in inventory accumulation so companies are reducing their orders and that's pushing analysts right now across the board to trim their estimates for example Morgan Stanley just today trimmed their AMD numbers lowering their price target to $95 they say the PC market is going to be even worse than predicted and The positive, though, they are bullish on global foundries. That stock is down, what, almost 4% today? But they say it is the only pure-play U.S. foundry, think of it like a manufacturing hub with long-term commitments from customers. And sticking with that demand story and more specifically demand weakness, Goldman Sachs today reducing estimates for both Micron and Western Digital to reflect demand weakness for memory chips. They cut back in August and they literally said in this uh, note today, quote, we clearly did not cut enough. And that's, Tyler, where we stand right now, a theme actually relevant to all of tech, all of the Nasdaq, have estimates come down enough to reflect the current and near term weakness that could ensue.
2: Yeah, well, well, we will see. I mean, if they didn't cut enough, I mean, that, that calls into question the, the near term, the weakness that we may see. Precisely,
0: right? that yeah. it's going to be a lot worse, according to, to a lot of the notes I've been reading and uh, what we've been seeing in the market, sadly.
2: Christina, great to see you. Thanks. Thank you. All right, that does it for The Exchange.
0: You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.